Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of Sepad Pod. I'm Simon Mabon, and today I'm joined by Dr. Lucia Ardovini. Lucia is lecturer in international relations with a focus on IR theory at Lancaster University. She's my colleague, and uh, I'm very excited to be able to say that. She works at the intersection of social movements, transnational activism, and ideology. And she's the author of the wonderful Surviving Repression, The Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood After the 2013 Coup, which was published last week by Manchester University Press in the Identities and Geopolitics series. I'm really excited to be able to talk with Lucia today. Uh, thank you for joining us. It's great to have you here. How are you doing? Hi, Simon. Thank you for having me. Very excited to be here. And uh, this all feels a bit surreal to finally see the book out. So I am very happy that we get the opportunity to chat about it. Yeah, likewise. It's um, it's really, uh, really exciting and it looks great. I mean, if you want to judge the book by the cover, you can and it would it would come out of it really well. But obviously the, the real merit is, is the analysis inside, which we will get to in, in due course. But first of all, I need to ask, what, what was it that prompted your intellectual curiosity in, in the Middle East and Egypt, the Brotherhood and Islamism more broadly? Uh, it's been a really long journey. I think it's kind of always hard to answer this kind of question. But um, I think it all started... God, over 10 years ago when I was an undergraduate student and uh, I was looking a lot into revolutionary theory and social movements and it just so happened uh, the 2011 Arab uprisings started uh, at that very point and I remember being up with my friends from the region like constantly watching videos of what was happening, uh, where they were coming from, like talking to their families, talking to their friends. And that was really the push I needed to uh, really zone in on what was happening, really looking into how social movements and religions and revolution come together, specifically in a region that is widely misunderstood and has been widely misunderstood from both, I think, the point of view of like the theory and the practice and the foreign policy towards it for such a long time. Sure. Um, so it's quite a personal journey then with regard to friends from the region and sort of sharing in, in some of their experiences of the, of the protests? Yeah, definitely. And uh, I mean, obviously I am very aware of my own positionality in this and this is something they are highlighting all of my work not just in the book like I'm very aware of the fact that I am not from the region myself and I don't want to study the region and study this movement uh, from you know the perspective of someone who's like replicating someone else's voice for me is very important to give an avenue to voices and to mm -hmm. give an avenue to experiences um, so it has been personal. I think it ties a lot into my own history of like activism and engagement. And yeah, it just felt right at that very moment. Um, I would have never expected it, that I would still be here working on this after over 10 years. But uh, here we are. Here we are indeed. Um, you, you touched on your, your sort of your history of activism. If I may, can I ask... To what extent does that shape your your scholarship and your intellectual engagement? Because you you studied 
uh, a whole host of things during your undergraduate and master's courses, and, and you could have gone in, in so many different directions. So what is it about the, the region, the brotherhood, social movements, do you think, that really captured your attention? Uh, for me, is like the emphasis on just how much social movements can influence change. And I'm not just talking about regime change, even though that is very important, but it's changing mindset, it's changing narratives, it's change in categories that we've been using to think about the region and think about the brotherhood and think about Islamism for so long. And for me, it's so important in all of my work to really challenge these categories, to challenge binaries, to demonstrate that things are changing all the time. And therefore, our understanding of it, our scholarship, our, our analysis also needs to reflect that change. Sure. It almost sounds like you're talking about structure and agency here. That would be <laughs> not uh, what I do at all, would it, <laughs> would it now? It, it is, it is, yes. Well, I think in terms of uh, full disclosure, I should say that um, that we worked together during your your PhD, and uh, and that debate about structure agency was one that we had pretty regularly. I think. Yes, we did, and <laughs> uh, and I wasn't so cautious uh, to like approach it and fully develop it, and then this ended up being really the core uh, of the book. So I think. Uh, uh, I think he matured over time, and I'm now more comfortable with really taking that perspective. Sure. Um, I, I I want to touch on some of the other stuff that you've done before we get to the book, because you've you've been on this this really impressive intellectual journey that took you to to Stockholm and a, a postdoc at the Swedish Institute of International Affairs, and you produced this this really really um, rich body of of literature on the on the Muslim Brotherhood and its diasporic politics, its transnational politics, with with some really great scholars, including our very own Mustafa Minshawi, um, and and a whole host of others. So I wonder, can you just tell us a little bit about the the research that you've done outside the book, first of all, please? And then we'll get on to the book in, in due course. Yes, sure. So this has also been very much an intellectual journey, as you were saying. Uh, obviously, like I was working on the Brotherhood during my PhD, and throughout my postdoc, I really got stuck into questions of, you know, identity, so collective identity versus individual identity, the very structure of social movements that manage to create a lifestyle for their members that go beyond just, you know, political affiliations and ideological affiliations. This is something that takes over people's lives very often. And I find that absolutely fascinating. So throughout, you know, all of my articles and like book chapters and the, the body of work that I produced uh, over the past few years, I've really explored this nexus between diaspora and identity, social movements and diaspora, different forms of transnational activism. But most of all, I've been focusing on how changes in personal experiences of repression uh, very much affect questions of identity as well. So what I do is I really try to trace the development of that identity, the development of that agency as a response to different external and internal forces 
Um, and I've been very lucky to, you know, speak to a lot of people throughout the years that have made me a part of their personal journey. And mm -hmm. that has had a massive impact on my scholarship. So when you talk about those internal and, and external factors, what, what do you mean exactly? I mean, the external factors, specifically in the case of social movements and in the Brotherhood, so social movements that have been uh, living and operating under repression for so long, we are talking about external factors such as repression, such as forced exile, such as being forced into a diasporic space that for a lot of members is a completely new experience. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of like the, the external framework that then directly triggers uh, internal questions and internal dynamics. The process of having to like forcibly relocate somewhere, leaving your family behind, is making a lot of people question, you know, not only their affiliation to the movement, but very often their all ideological positioning the relationship that they have with other members, the relationship that they have with core key ideological questions and questions of strategy. And while in the case of the Brotherhood, this sort of like internal, internal dynamics and internal questions have been there historically, I do not think that we would have seen them playing such a big role uh, after 2013, if if he had not been for the dimension of exile and for the dimension of you know having to forcibly relocate and you know find yourself again somewhere else. Sure. Um, just for for those who are perhaps either unfamiliar or have forgotten the significance of 2013, just just briefly remind people why 2013 is so important for the Brotherhood, please. Yes, uh, I mean, 2013 is one of the most pivotal moments in the history of the Brotherhood, I think. I mean, the organization was founded in 1928, and it always played a very big part in the politics of Egypt, but also the politics of the region more broadly. And for the majority of its history, up to 2011, the Brotherhood operated uh, under heavy regime opposition, so it was kind of existing in this gray space where it was a very powerful political actor, civil society actor, but never fully recognized as a legal political entity. Mm -hmm. And that changed with 2011 because the Brotherhood was very skillful in sort of like riding the opportunity and the opening of the political space that um, came after the removal of Bosni Mubarak. And that was also the first time in all of its history where they were able to uh, form a political political government, essentially. While they've been involved in politics and in elections beforehand, after 2011, the Brotherhood um, had Mohamed Morsi, who was elect elected as Egyptian president. They really had the opportunity for the first time to put their ideology into practice. And some people would say that that was a spectacular failure. I think there are different angles that should be considered here. But 2013 is so relevant because that's when the counter-revolutionary regime staged this military coup d'etat that removed the Brotherhood from government and therefore kick-started a new wave of repression that ended up into forced exile. And this is such a pivotal moment 
not just because this repression comes after the experience of government for the first time, but it, because it also forced essentially the majority of its members to leave Egypt, to not only leave uh, under an illegal status at home, but also abroad. So mm-hmm. I think that these kind of kick-started a whole host of like new questions about you know practice, ideology, identity, uh, and strategy moving forward that is very much reshaping the very nature of the organization now. Sure. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And and that's helpful for people who are perhaps not quite as, as familiar with the Brotherhood. So thank you. There's a couple of things I want to just pick up on with regard to your scholarship. Before we get to the book, um, there's there's some really interesting work that you've produced for um, for a number of different articles. Um, one that, that we did together for Mediterranean politics titled Egypt's Unbreakable Curse, Tracing the State of Exception from Mubarak to Al-Sisi, I think is is really important in in setting up those structural factors shaping the brotherhood's um, political, social engagement in Egypt. So those those mm-hmm. structural factors. So can you tell us just a little bit about what what you brackets we were trying to do in that piece, please, for anyone who's not read it yet. Uh, yes, I mean, anyone who's not read it should go read it because we really put a lot of work into <laughs> we did. it. Um, but yes, so in the article, we were trying to really identify and unpack the structures that uh, not only uphold, you know, a state of exception and uh, different structures of repression within Egypt as a whole, but also we were looking specifically of, at how this applies to the Brotherhood. And, you know, identifying factors such as, you know, a very long history of repression, um, even almost like a sectarian struggle between different Egyptian regimes and the government, like all the legal implications of Mm -hmm. being an organization um, that has to operate under illegality has really allowed us to sort of also identify the way in which these very structures of oppression reinforce the brotherhood created a very strong collective identity, created a, a very strong uh, unifying message that kept its members together, that kept the organization together, that really gave them this push to continue existing and to continue being a very strong civil and political force. So what we did is we really show how despite repression and to a certain extent, thanks to repression as well, the Brotherhood has thrived for over 80 years, becoming the actor that it is today. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, I think that's that's really helpful and it it does a good job, thanks to your um, genealogy of, of the, the Brotherhood's experience, setting up that sort of political structure through which the, 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 the group has operated. Um, you've You've then t- built on that to look at the structural factors within the group in some of your articles, such as uh, your piece in the British Journal of Middle East Studies, Stagnation versus Adaptation, Tracking the Muslim Brotherhood's Trajectories after the 2013 coup, but perhaps more so in um, in your piece for Middle East Law and Governance, Rethinking the Tanzim, Tensions Between Individual Identities and Organisational Structures in the Muslim Brotherhood after 2013. 
And I think that's a really fascinating piece, looking at, at individual agency within the context of a, of a social movement, if you will. So can you tell us just a little bit about that, please? Yes. I think that the starting point is the understanding that the Tanzim is the organization. So like when we talk about the Tanzim, we're talking about the Muslim Brotherhood, not just as a political entity, but also in terms of how the organization is structured internally as well. So what I do in this article is I really focus on the fact that one of the biggest trends that has allowed the Brotherhood to survive and thrive for so long under oppression is this very hierarchical, very strict organizational structure. Like we're talking about a movement that has over seven different ranks of membership, for example. This is a movement where before you become a member itself, you have to go through a socialization and a socialization process that in some cases can last up to 15 years. Mm-hmm. And the result of that is the creation of a body of members that are subscribing to the Brotherhood, not just as an ideological movement, but as a way of life as well. But there are tensions within it because this very hierarchical structure that has kept the organization together, creating this very strong collective identity, has also been historically challenged from some of the members. So this is where we first start seeing these questions of like individual structure, uh, sorry, individual agency versus organizational structure really coming out. One of the very long grievances that some portion of the Brotherhood membership have had for decades is the fact that because the internal organization is so strict, there is very little space for individual voices. Mm -hmm. There is very little space for individual members bringing forward initiatives to better the organization, to maybe revise the ideology, to politicize some narratives even more. So what I do in this article is I trace the historical development of these tensions And then I show how they are now resulting after 2013 in struggles over different strategies to react to the coup and different strategies to move forward as well. Fascinating and really, really interesting stuff. And there's so many questions I can ask about this and its application to to other transnational movements, other exiled movements, diasporic communities, etc., etc., that we will, I guess, have to pick up on in in future conversations, given uh, time constraints. But before we get to the book, I must ask you: you uh, you mentioned in passing the the word sectarianism, and this is something that that has been in discussion between um, or with a number of, of different Sepad fellows. This idea of of the Brotherhood as a sectarian actor or an actor involved in the production or contestation of sectarian identities or narratives. Just briefly, tell us a little bit about your take on this, please. I mean, where, where do you situate yourself and the Brotherhood in discussions of sectarianism? Uh, I think I straddle different uh, approaches to this. 
because I mean, you and I have also worked together uh, on on a special issue talking about how the Brotherhood has been constructed historically as a sectarian actor by the Egyptian state, mm-hmm. so portraying them as you know um, a group that uh, was very much opposed to like the values of Egypt and not representative of a big part of the population. But I think that we can definitely think about the Brotherhood as a sect in itself. Going back to this idea of, you know, very strong ideological narratives and collective identities and so on. But at the same time, I think that there is a sectarian element within the brotherhood in itself. Mm-hmm. When we talk about, you know, different uh, groups, different alliances, different interpretations of ideology and practice. And, you know, even within Egyptian society, this is yet another level where we can look at the Brotherhood as a sectarian actor in terms of how it relates to different groups and different um, sections of the Egyptian population. So I'm currently working on a piece that is looking at the internal sectarian dimension of the Brotherhood when I try to make sense of, you know, competing opinion and competing voices and I try to argue that it is useful analytically to look at the Brotherhood through a sectarian lens, but again, very much working from the perspective that we should be, uh, you know, deconstruct what we mean by sectarianism and bring the sectarianization into the narrative as well. Yeah, there's there's so much to reflect on here, and I'm really pleased to hear that you're you're in the process of reflecting on this and producing some work on it. And uh, I think there's there's a lot of scope to do important work on sort of intra sectarian tensions and the Brotherhood's role in in reinforcing, contesting, challenging those types of, of divisions. So I, I very much look forward to to seeing how that all develops. But yeah, so so do I. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. No pressure, of course. Um, let Let's turn to the book. Um, the book, which is wonderful, and I'm really looking forward to getting my hands on a copy, titled Surviving Repression, the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood after the 2013 coup. Tell us about the title then. There's a lot going on in that title. Um, there's a lot of implicit work in that title. So so what are you hoping to, to point to here in this choice of title? And then from that, what does the book do? Yeah. Uh, this is a very uh, loaded uh, question. I think like my favorite part of the title is the first bit, so it's surviving repression. Because mm-hmm. what I'm trying to show here is that like the Brotherhood has entered a new era of its history after 2013, which is unlike any of the experiences that it had shaped the Brotherhood up until that point. And even though some time has passed, it's still very much a question of the organization trying to survive outside of Egypt, trying to survive this new, very harsh wave of repression that operates domestically, but internationally as well. Mm-hmm. So in the book, I trace the history of the Brotherhood after the 2013 coup to really put the focus on very essential existential questions about identity, about strategical, ideological, and organizational debates that are renewing the Brotherhood as we have known it up until 2013. These are still processes that are very much happening as we speak, but I would argue that the end result will be 
still the Brotherhood, but a new version of the Brotherhood, if so you will. Sure. Uh, that's that's really, really interesting. And it, it raises questions about what comes next, right? Um, mm-hmm. Which, I mean, we can talk about the future of the, the Brotherhood um, in, in a little bit, but the, the title has the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood after the 2013 coup. And yet the, the front cover of the book points to a different state. Talk to us a little bit about, about diasporic politics here then and the Brotherhood's role outside of Egypt, yet as an Egyptian actor. Yes. So I think that the starting point here is that even though the Brotherhood was founded in Egypt by Hassan al-Banna, it always had a, a very strong regional and international influence. Uh, we see this not only in the form of like different sister groups and different sister movements throughout the region, but also in the very strong pull that its ideology had uh, on other movements and Islamist movements worldwide as well. Mm-hmm. What changed after 2013, and the reason why the cover of the book specifically looks at Turkey as well, is this dimension that you were mentioning, so the dimension of like diasporic politics. Because while prior to 2013, some of its leaders had been exiled, after 2013, we see that it is the first time that its members had to flee en masse. Mm-hmm. which obviously comes with a lot of very deep existential questions. Like the experience of diaspora can be um, a very traumatic experience. And that is adding to, you know, the experience of state repression during 2013. So the Rabah massacre, for example. Um, and this is, of course, affecting not just the politics of the organization and of its members, but their members' like experiences and sensibilities and subjectivities as well. So diaspora politics is somewhat new to the movement, but what I want to do with the book is really look at how individual members are experiencing, of how the dimension of diaspora and diaspora building is impacting on their own subjectivities and, ideolo- and ideologies and emotions as well. And identities, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I talk about subjectivities, uh, I am implicitly talking about uh, a long process of almost refinding and reshaping your identity, not just as a member of the Brotherhood, but as an Egyptian who lives in exile as well. Mm-hmm. Mm, interesting. Um Talk to us a little bit about the fieldwork then, because you've done extensive um, interviews. Just just tell us uh, a little bit about where they, they took place and maybe some of the things that you, you found during the interview process, please. Yes, I think that this is really the, the core of my work and the core of the discussions that I have with the book as well. Uh, I started working on the Brotherhood in 2013 as my PhD, and I was very lucky to, uh, I guess, gain the trust of members and of leaders who are part of what is notoriously a very secretive organization. So throughout the years, I really managed to do uh, fieldwork and ethnography with a very, very big number of people. And what makes this fieldwork so different and so exciting for me, and again, I feel very lucky that I was able to do it, is the fact that I was able to speak to members from 
across the organizational spectrum and across the generational spectrum as well. So I was very lucky in terms of having conversations from, you know, members of the youth, uh, leaders who had been in power for decades, members who at some point exited the Brotherhood and then re-entered, members who left the Brotherhood for good, uh, members of the Muslim Sisterhood as well. So I've really been able to sort of have conversations uh, that I feel encapsulate a broader view of what the different sections of the Brotherhood stand for and what they are experiencing as well. Mm-hmm. And something that has been incredibly fascinating and humbling for me as well is that like, I have been speaking to some of these people regularly since 2013. So they've really made me a part of their journey. They've made me a part of their trauma and their experiences and their questions about identity. Like, I feel like uh, I was really able to witness these processes of, uh, you know, going through a series of very existential questions and I've been able to witness how this developed throughout the years as well, which, again, I am incredibly grateful for. Yeah, of course. And it's really interesting in the book to see those reflections and those observations over time um, from from the different subgroups, communities um, within the, the, the broader umbrella organization where positionality shapes the experience, the actions, the identities, the, the views of, of members. Can I ask mm-hmm. you about space? Because we've had conversations in the past about the spatial aspect of the Brotherhood, uh, not just the um, the sort of the diasporic spatial turn, but but the 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 more um, sort of geographical spatial components of membership of the Brotherhood. Please. Yes, I mean this is incredibly fascinating. It's something that, as you know, I'm still exploring. Yeah, but space. Uh, understood in different ways uh, is also key when we look at, you know, the dimension of like collective identity the members of the Brotherhood have uh, and have had for such a long time. I've been speaking to people, for example, who told me how back in Egypt they built their houses to reflect the fact that uh, they were a member of the Brotherhood. So there will be like the family home with then an addiction of, you know, a couple of rooms that were specifically there for uh, Uzra meetings or Brotherhood meetings. So that was their membership and their commitment to the movement is reflected in the very architecture mm-hmm. of their home. Um, when we're looking at the diasporic element, for example, um moving away from like broader like geograph- geographical um, concerns such as you know Istanbul or London or Birmingham um, we see also how the brotherhood and its members tend to stick together so if you go to Istanbul uh, there are certain parts of the city where um, essentially only brotherhood members live uh, you can recognize their houses. There are specific signs and like specific even trinkets on their windows that indicate there is an Ikhwani home, for mm-hmm. example. So space is very fascinating and architecture is also incredibly fascinating in here. 
Yeah, for sure. Um, it's something that, that people have done a lot of work on, particularly in Lebanon and, uh, and sort of sectarian communities in Lebanon. But it's, it's really interesting and important to, to take that into different contexts. And I look forward to seeing how, how all of this develops with regard to, to your research and, and the spatial turn in particular. So my final question, if I may, is, is one that will ask you to, to reflect a little bit on, on close to 10 years of, of studying the Brotherhood, which is quite a thought, I guess, certainly for me, having, yeah. having seen your, uh, your intellectual journey across those 10 years. Where does the, the Brotherhood go from now? What, what does its future look like? I realize there's a crystal ball involved here, but um, just some general ruminations, some thoughts about what you think will happen next, please. Uh, yes, this is uh, also a question that I ask uh, my interviewees all the time, and I feel like no one really has an answer for it. Mm -hmm. uh, but without speculating too much, I am comfortable enough to say that I don't agree with anyone who says that the Brotherhood is done. Uh, the Brotherhood is not done. The, yes, it is experiencing very deep, existential questions about ideology and strategy and narratives. And these questions are very much driven for the first time by the members themselves. And this is also going back to this element of surviving. The organization is very divided, not only geographically now in terms of diasporic spaces, but also in terms of how they move forward, what kind of organization they want to be in the future. And we see a real difference, I think, between a part of the membership that is happy and concerned, I think, with the organization's survival. So they just want the Brotherhood to survive mm -hmm. uh, and to sort of like stay the kind of actor they has always been. And then there's, the there's a part of the organization that wants the movement to thrive. They don't want it just to survive. They want it to reinvent itself. They want it to update its ideology, update uh, its approach to politics and its approach to society. And this is a very deep force for transformation. And there is resistance to this transformation from within the Brotherhood, but this doesn't change the fact that it is happening. It's happening at the level of individual members. It's happening at the level of, you know, the organizational structure that we were talking about earlier. And it's also happening in terms of you know, the balance be between uh, preaching and politics, the balance between theory and practice. Mm -hmm. So I think that the Brotherhood is on this transformation journey. And I'm not, I don't know when this will be done. I don't think that maybe it will ever be done. But the Brotherhood is succeeding in surviving abroad. It's succeeding in regrouping. And it is beginning to seek answers to some of these questions that have been part of the organization for decades. So it's, it's quite a transformation process and its impact uh, will resonate across different social movements and Islamist movements across the region as well. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been really, really interesting hearing your, your reflections on your, your intellectual journey and, uh, and this wonderful book that I'm really excited to hear people, um, 
that people are reading about it and and enjoying it and being provoked by the ideas that it contains. So huge congratulations on the book. Very exciting. And um, thank you again for your time. Thank you for having me. This has been great. A huge thank you to Lucia for her time just now. You can find her on Twitter at Lucia Ardovini, at Lucia Ardovini, and do check out her wonderful new book with Manchester University Press. A huge thank you to you, as always, for listening. Please do like, comment, share, subscribe, etc., etc., etc. I promise I'll stop asking people to do this in future. Um, I really should also look at how it helps, but apparently it does. Anyway, I digress. Thank you again, do take care, and until next time.